Welcome to Redemption Community Church's Sermon Podcast. For more information, please visit www.redemptiondallas.org. We are indebted for all eternity for what Christ did for us on the cross. We will never pay Him back. We don't have a debtor's ethic. But we do stand here this morning, not somber, but sober sober-minded to say, Lord Jesus, we honor you this morning for the sacrifice that you gave for us. So if you would stand with me this morning, I just want to go before we go into our sermon, launching off what Brad read this morning, just ask us to pray one more time together. Father, your word is forever settled in heaven. The grass withers and the flower fades, as your prophet said, but your word stands forever. It is a light into our feet and a lamp into our pathway. The Word of God makes alive, and it is powerful, and it is sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and joints and marrow, and Your Word is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of our heart. So this morning, Father, we come before You knowing that Your Word is anointed, but that collectively here this morning and individually that we come to give You honor today for what You've done for us and to know that if we do make eternity with You forever, that it is not anything that we do, but it is all because of the work that you did on the cross. Upon a life I did not live and upon a death I did not die, I stake my whole eternity. We pray this this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Last Sunday was part one of this sermon. And I told you that today would be part two, and I decided next week will be part three because I realized last night I could not work everything into uh, one sermon. The man walking out of service one morning shook the preacher's hand and he said, Preacher, I knew you knew a lot. He said, I just didn't think you were going to tell it to us all in one day. (laughs) And uh, I've sat through those sermons. I don't want to be that guy. <laughs> um, so it's better to split it up into maybe three weeks. So last Sunday we walked through Holy Week and we talked about what happened on Palm Sunday and Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and then Monday, Thursday. Uh, and then we're going to talk today about what happened Friday and Resurrection Sunday. And next week I'll unpack more the theology, how it applies to us, the the meaning to us. Um, But today I really just want to tell the story like we did last week of Holy Week. So with last week we talked about Monday, Thursday. This is not Monday, Thursday. This is Monday, M-A-U-N-D-Y. It means a new commandment. uh, And it's the commandment that Jesus gave to His disciples that you love one another. And then it was the time of the Last Supper on that Thursday evening and today we conclude Holy Week with the celebration of the resurrection of our Lord Jesus and today is more of the story and I am following the traditional timeline of the events that happened this week. There are really good arguments for the crucifixion occurring on Wednesday or Thursday and not Good Friday. Uh, Matter of fact probably likely it did not happen on Good Friday. That is not the focus today. I've read the arguments. Uh, I have people that I respect a lot 
that have made good arguments for Wednesday. I've probably leaned towards the arguments of Thursday, but honestly, it's just not as relevant. It's not the focus today. Uh, <clears throat> the writers of Scripture were not Western thinking modernists. They weren't as concerned with the timeline of events as evidenced by the fact that they did not record anything that is concrete enough to cause us to not disagree. Uh, because this is one of those things where you read the arguments for the people on Wednesday and you go, yeah, it was on Wednesday, until you read the people who say it was on Thursday and you're like, yeah, that sounds pretty good too. But the writers of the four Gospels did not think like us. They didn't record timelines. Uh, they were trying to record that the events and really the, the glory of what happened, of what Christ did for us. So just as we can lose sight of the fact that Christ is returning in the future by developing tunnel vision that causes an overconcern in the order of future events, so it is with Holy Week. So I, I follow this morning the tradition while acknowledging that the days may be off but that that does not affect at all the power of the gospel. So we remember that last week on Monday, Thursday, Jesus sent His disciples into Jerusalem to prepare for the Passover. And it is at this Passover meal that Jesus washes His disciples' feet. And they partook of the Passover meal. It's what we call the Last Supper. And then Jesus gives the new commandment. He says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. And by this, people will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. They then go to the Garden of Gethsemane. And Jesus prays while His disciples sleep. It is in this prayer that Jesus prays that, Father, if possible, that this cup would pass over me. And He doesn't want to drink the cup of this, uh, the wrath of God upon Him for the sins of all humanity. And then Jesus says, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And, and then Judas leads a group of men to arrest Jesus because the Bible says that it was common for Jesus <clears throat> to leave the city go out just outside the city to the Mount of Olives where this Garden of Gethsemane is, uh, where there are olive trees. The olive trees are still there today. Uh, it's possible that some of those olive trees that existed at the time of Christ are even alive today. If not those trees, then one generation removed of those trees because olive trees live a very long time. So it's a real historical place that we can go and visit. <clears throat> That was Thursday evening, and now it's overnight. Jesus has not slept, and it is now in the early hours of Friday between 4 a.m. and 6 a.m. This is the generally accepted time. And they come, they, they gather, they, they arrest Jesus, and Jesus says, you were in the temple with me daily, and you didn't arrest me. And the reason why is because they were afraid of what the people would do, so they come to Jesus by night. They arrest Him in the early morning hours, and Jesus is brought before the Jewish high priest. And the high priest says to Jesus, I, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. And Jesus answers him, and He says, Well, you have said so. Uh, and, or the high priest says to Jesus, you have said so. And Jesus replied, but I say to all of you, from now on you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the hands on the clouds of heaven. And the Bible says the high priest tore his clothes and said, he has spoken blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? Look, now you have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? He is worthy of death. 
they answered. And then they spit in his face and they struck him and some slapped him. And now the physical abuse begins, saying, mocking him, prophesy to us, Christ, who is it that struck you? It is during this time, in the early morning hours, that Peter denies that he knows Jesus, cursing and swearing and lying. This is Peter about knowing the one who just a few hours before at dinner, he looked in the eye and said, I will die for you, Jesus, but I'll never deny you. This is the same Peter that in just a few weeks is going to be the first preacher of the church on the day of Pentecost. But just a few weeks before the birth of the church, Peter is crumbling. He says, I don't know who that man is. They said to him, your accent betrays you. By your accent, you're, you're from his area. You've got to know him. So Peter thinks, well, if I curse... I'll just, I'll just curse and they'll just, well, he's not a Christ follower. So he begins to curse. And then Peter hears the rooster crow the third time and remembers the word of, words of Jesus come back to haunt him. And the Bible says that he went out and he wept bitterly. Roughly between 6 to 8 a.m. that Friday morning, they led Jesus from the house of the high priest and took him to the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate. It is here that Pilate asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered him, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting, that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not of this world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. And Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate said to him those famous words, What is truth? What is truth? Pilate, who, keep in mind that Pilate is a Roman governor. There is a Caesar that is in charge of the Roman Empire. Israel, Palestine at this time, is under Roman rule. So they have Roman government, and Pilate is a Roman governor of this region. And the agreement between Rome when they would go in, and this is, happens more than just in Israel, when they would go in and take over countries, they would make this agreement with them and say, we know you have your own religion, so we're going to let you practice your religion. And the trade-off of that is, is that you don't give us too much flack. You submit to us, you go by our laws, you don't rebel, and if you do so, we're going to let you practice your religion. So this is why you have Roman government and you have Jewish religion that is in place. And we see the two fighting all the time. And the, the Jewish rulers were not, history tells us, the Jewish rulers were not friendly with Pilate. There had been a lot of, of clashes there as well. But at this moment, they want Pilate to carry out this execution. They can't do it on their own. So Pilate doesn't want any part of this. He doesn't have a dog in the fight. Pilate takes Jesus back out to the Jews and says, I find no fault in him. But there was a custom that on the Passover the Romans would release a prisoner back to the Jews. The Jews got to pick a prisoner that was in custody and they would release him. Pilate's wife came to him and said to him, don't have anything to do with this righteous man. It's like the Roman governor's wife sees that he's righteous and the people called by God don't see his identity. But Pilate's wife says, Don't have anything to do with this righteous man, for I have suffered much today because of a dream that I had about him. Evidently a nightmare that she had. 
So his wife is trying to convince him, just don't, don't have anything to do with this. So Pilate goes out and asks the crowd, which of these two men should I release to you? Because there was a man in custody named Barabbas who was a robber, a thief, a convicted criminal that was in custody. And he says, you can have Barabbas or you can have Jesus released to you. And the crowd starts to cry out, give us Barabbas. And you can feel the mob mentality take over. And Scripture tells us, gives us indication that it was a mob mentality. The people are bloodthirsty and they'd rather let a real criminal be freed to roam the streets than to release the one who claims to be the Son of God. Pilate says, I find no fault in Jesus. What should I do with him? And the crowd in a frenzy shouts, crucify him. And so he asks, but what evil has he done? And the crowd shouts out the more, crucify him, crucify him. And we know it's a mob mentality because the Bible says that Pilate can tell that a riot is about to begin. The people are whipped up into a frenzy. And we see, we've seen evidences of that in, in culture and in history where there, there becomes this mob mentality that breaks out. And they just, it's, it's this unified mentality and they say crucify him, kill him, execute him. So Pilate goes and gets a basin of water and he washes his hands in front of the crowd and says, I am innocent of this man's blood, see to it yourselves. The crowd of Jews, the people who were chosen by God had rejected him. And the crowd roars back. His blood be on us and on our children. And so it has. It is here that Jesus is first beaten with a whip. He's scourged, he's flogged, words the Bible uses. We don't know details from Scripture, but the most famous first century historian at this time that gives us background about Scripture, his name is Josephus. Josephus says it was common for people who were crucified to first be whipped and flogged. And that often people were beat to the point that their insides, their guts started to be exposed. This is what happened before crucifixion. The Roman soldiers then escalated the physical and mental cruelty. They made a crown of thorns and they jammed it upon his head. And we can imagine as they placed it on there, it piercing the skin. And then they put a purple robe on him and a reed in his hand to to symbolize a scepter and they begin to mock him and this purple robe to signify royalty and they said hail the king of the Jews as they slapped him in the face and then they begin to spit on him they took the reed out of his hand they begin to hit him in the head and they ripped the robe off of him and they led him away to be crucified <clears throat> it is around eight o'clock that morning that Jesus is tasked with carrying his own cross to Golgotha the place of the skull, the place of his execution. We see the paintings, the, the, the pictures of Jesus carrying the full cross. <clears throat> it's probably not what happened. Typically they left the main pole in the ground and just the, the horizontal cross beam was what the person would carry. And so he has this large singular beam that he's trying to carry. One gospel talks about him carrying it. Another gospel talks about a Roman soldier pulling a man named Simon out of the crowd because Jesus can't finish carrying this beam. He's so weak. And so the Roman soldier commands Simon to carry, finish carrying the cross the rest of the way. And it is on that hill, Golgotha, that Jesus is crucified between two other common criminals. Both who, we often hear about the one who curses out Jesus, but one of the gospels says both of the men curse Jesus. 
Both of the thieves on the cross called him out. Nails driven in his hands or most likely probably his wrists and his feet. He's also likely tied, his arms tied to the horizontal beam to keep him from the, the nails from sliding out of his body. <clears throat> Most people who were crucified died of asphyxiation. You suffocated to death. It was the way that you died. And there Jesus was naked, most likely naked. We see the paintings and the loincloth, but that's to not offend our modern sensibilities, but most likely naked, uh, exposed to onlookers and gawkers and his family and his own mother, standing there looking at their son dying, the punishment of capital death. The eternal logos, the Word made flesh. In the beginning was the Word, John said, and the Word was both with God and the Word was God, and the Word was... Uh, became manifested flesh and it dwelt among us. The eternal God of the universe in flesh walking among us. Everyone should have bowed at His feet. Everyone should have honored Him for who He really was. And they missed it. They missed seeing Jesus. They missed the promised Messiah that was promised in the Old Testament in the Scriptures. The eternal Logos dying on a cross as soldiers gambled for His clothing. So he prays on the cross, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. We talk about us being Christians. We say we're Christians. To be Christian means to be Christ-like. Am I Christ-like in every area? Well, I don't know your heart and your mind, so I can only speak for myself to tell you that I am not a Christian. Not in the true definition of the word because I'm not Christ-like in every area. I'm a disciple, I'm a Christ follower, but am I like Jesus in every way? No, because after years of living for Him and walking with Him, I still have attitudes and drives and motives and inner things and thoughts and all these things that don't line up with His character. And I suspect that I always will. I'll, I'll never be perfect. Uh, that, that's not the mark of Christian of Christianity, that's not the mark of being saved, is to be perfect. Uh, the Scripture says, Be holy, for I am holy, and without holiness no man shall see the Lord. Amen. And so my holiness, my perfection is derived from the holiness of God, from the perfection of Christ. I am saved by His righteousness, not my own. If I am saved on my own righteousness, I am in big trouble. Uh, I might as well give up and go find something better to do with my Sunday mornings. Uh, because I will not be saved by my own righteousness. So both criminals curse Him. And Jesus is on the cross saying, Father, forgive them. So when we talk about being Christians, we want the, we want the Christ-like gifts that let us walk on water and heal the sick and raise the dead and heal deaf people and open the blind eyes and teach people how to fish for their tax money. All things that happen in the Gospels. But the mark of true Christianity is to be able to do things like this after the greatest injustice ever perpetrated on humanity was done that day. R.C. Sproul said, people ask the question, why do good things, why do bad things happen to good people? Why do bad things happen to good people? And R.C. Sproul said it only happened once in history, and he volunteered. Why do bad things happen to good people? It happened once, and he volunteered. And he says, Father, forgive them. That's the mark of tr true Christianity, going the extra mile, turning the other cheek, being Christ-like in our character. So both criminals 
cursed him. And one of the criminals who were hanged railed at him and said, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him and said, Do you not fear God? Since you are under the same sentence of condemnation, and we indeed justly, like we committed the crime, we are hanging here justly, we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus saves the man who asks him to remember me in your kingdom. There is a preacher named Alastair Begg. <coughs> he preached a sermon a few years ago that has become very well known. And the excerpt, at least about a four-minute excerpt from the sermon, is the man on the middle cross said, I could come. And that was the phrase from the sermon. And his sermon was, when that thief on the cross gets to heaven and the angel asks him, wait a minute, you did such and such. Now he's extrapolating, this isn't scripture, he's, he's painting a picture. And the thief on the cross says, well, the angel says, why, why are you here? What are you doing here? And the thief says, well, uh, the man on the middle cross said I could come. And he says, wait a minute, were you justified by faith? Were you this? Did you tick all these boxes? Did you do this? And the guy said, I, I don't know. He said, I just know I'm here because the man on the middle cross said I could come. When we get to glory, to heaven, whatever you want to call it, the age to come, and we are eternally with Him, if Jesus asks us the question, son, daughter, why are you here? The answer will never be, well, it's because I did this. It's because I did that. It's because I ticked this box. The answer must surely be because you said I could come, because of the work that you did on the cross is what saved me. I will fall at His feet and worship Him and say, You are the reason that I am here and nothing that I could merit. Jesus utters seven sayings from the cross. One of those, He cries out, It is finished. It is finished. <coughs> the redemptive plan that started in Genesis and flowed through the covenants God made with Adam and Noah and Moses, and Abraham, and David, the law, the prophets, the scriptures, all pointing to Christ and His redemptive work. The Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. John the Baptist crying out, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. All of this plan to redeem mankind. And Jesus bows His head and says, It is finished. <clears throat> Jesus is crucified around 9 o'clock that morning and He lives for about another 6 hours until 3 p.m. And around noon, darkness covers the whole land. And Luke says, the sun's light failed. I don't take this to be a coincidental astronomical event. Rather, the cosmos was hemorrhaging at the sight of its Creator's agony. There was an earthquake, nature itself revolting against the greatest injustice ever perpetrated against a man. And at that moment, the great curtain in the temple was ripped in two pieces from top to bottom, as if God Himself was taking the veil and ripping it open, signifying that just as the flesh of Christ was being ripped apart, so the veil in the temple that separated people from the presence of God was also being torn. This is not an analogy that I 
connected the dots with. The writer of Hebrews makes this analogy that the, the, the veil in the temple being rent is equivalent, is a, is a model for the flesh of Christ being ripped open. And as the flesh of Christ is being torn apart, the veil in the temple, in the temple you had the room, the Holy of Holies, the most holy place, where in the Old Testament, the high priest one day a year on the Day of Atonement, they still celebrate it as, as Jews in the Jewish tradition. They'll call it Yom Kippur. It is still the most holy day of the year. And this Day of Atonement, one day a year, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies and he would meet God. And the, the glory of God, the Shekinah presence of God, the manifest presence of God would come down and meet him. And one man, one day a year, would go in and atone for the sins of the people. And the priest had to be holy. If, if the priest wasn't holy, God would kill him. They had uh, bells on his, his robes that, that were there so that they could know that the priest was still moving, he was still alive. Because if he doesn't follow the correct sacrifices to atone for his own sins, then God will not allow him to live in his presence. So one man one day a year gets to experience the presence of God. And at the crucifixion, God comes down and He rips the veil open in the temple. And now everyone has access. Everyone can go into the throne room of God. Everyone is invited to come in to the throne of grace. So much is happening in these few short hours. Less than 24 hours earlier, Jesus is having dinner with His disciples and now redemptive history is being made. Luke 23, then Jesus calling out with a loud voice said, Father... Into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last breath. Now when the centurion, the Roman guard, the soldier, saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. Another gospel says, he said, Surely this was the Son of God. The Romans saw it. The uh, Roman governor's wife sees it. The people of God, they kill him. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle when they saw what had taken place, they returned home beating their breasts. And the soldier ran a spear through the side of Jesus, likely just to make sure he was dead. This morning I have glossed over most of the details of the physical torment that Jesus suffered. If you think I've been graphic, I haven't begun to touch what took place on the cross. I just, I wouldn't do it with the, the ages that we have in here. Um, but suffice it to say that uh, the physical torment that he went through, the Romans had perfected it. They were masters at executing people and torturing people. It was common for criminals to last as long as 36 hours on a cross. Jesus lasted six. Modern medical analysis that started a couple hundred years ago with the knowledge that we now have looking at the evidence of Scripture argues that Jesus likely died of a heart attack. A literal broken heart is what killed him on the cross. That evening, a wealthy man named Joseph, who was also a disciple of Jesus, went to Pilate. Probably not everybody had access to Pilate, but Joseph and his uh, prestige and his wealth and his state in society did. And so he went to Pilate. He said, I'm a Christ follower. Can I have his body? And Pilate allowed him to have it. So Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut into the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. 
Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there sitting opposite the tomb. The next day, that is, after the day of preparation, so when you read about the day of preparation in Scripture, it is you have the Sabbath day when they don't work. The law says that Jews, you don't work on the Sabbath day. So the day of preparation was the day before uh, the, day, the, the Sabbath. It was the day that they prepared meals and all the things so that they wouldn't have to work on the Sabbath. The Sabbath in Judaism is on the Saturday. However, the Passover on Friday, uh, there are multiple Sabbaths. You can have more than one Sabbath in a week. The Passover was considered a Sabbath. So in this case, you had back-to-back Sabbaths. And this is where... This is why the date of the crucifixion isn't quite so clear because when was the day of preparation? Well, it was likely the day before on Thursday because Friday is a Sabbath. So this is what it means on the day of preparation. The next day, that is after the day of preparation, the chief priest and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he is risen from the dead, and the last fraud will be worse than the first. So Pilate said to them, You have a guard of soldiers. Go, make it secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who is crucified. And here is why we celebrate. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. He is not here. He has risen, as He said. Everything that Jesus Christ says will come to pass, will come to pass. You cannot thwart the plan of God. You cannot frustrate or stop what God intends to do. When God speaks it and says it will come to pass, Roman soldiers, government, powers, principalities, Satan, Crowds, mobs, nobody can stop the plan and purpose of God 2,000 years ago and nobody will stop the plan and purpose of God today. Don't get shook about the events that you see in the world. God has a redemptive plan that is continuing to carry on throughout history. Christ will return someday to this earth. When? I don't know. It doesn't matter. Christ will come back and finish what He started. I don't like to embarrass my children, but my 10-year-old came to me last week and said, why isn't Jesus come back to finish what He started? Why doesn't He just come back now? And I said, I don't know. (laughs) That's a really good question. My kids usually have the best questions. He goes, what's He waiting for? He'll just come back now. Uh, And I said, well, someday you'll have to ask Him that question. I don't know. I know that God does everything in His time. And no matter what it looks like in the world today, His plan will not be stopped. He is not here. He has risen, as He said. Come, see the place where He lay. Then go quickly and tell His disciples that He has risen from the dead. And behold, He is going before you to Galilee, and there you will see Him. See, I have told you. 
So they depart quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy, the Bible says, and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings! And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. And then Jesus said to him, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. The Roman soldiers went into the city and told the elders what happened. And the Bible says the Roman soldiers were paid off to lie and say the disciples came and stole the body while they were sleeping. Matthew 28, it's the closing words of Jesus in Matthew. And in the interim, we'll go into it a lot, but now in the interim you have the glorified Christ. And we see how the glorified body of Christ operates. Uh, he's on a road to Emmaus with two of his followers and he's talking to them and, and then he just, just, just disappears. And then they realize who it was and they say, did our hearts not burn within us? His disciples are in a locked room like this. They have the doors barred. They're trying to figure out what to do and all of a sudden Jesus just manifests in the room. Doesn't need to, he doesn't walk through walls. It's not, he just manifests where he wants to. He's glorified. It's the glorified body. In the resurrection, we will have physical, literal bodies like we do today. It is, it, there is just zero scripture for this idea that we're going to be these ethereal, floaty things up in heaven. There's no Bible for that. That comes much more. That's Plato. That is Plato's influence on Christianity. Very much so. Uh, if you study your history, Plato influences that kind of thinking, not scripture. Scripture says, Paul says, we will have a body like as unto His glorious body. That's what we will be like, physical beings living in a physical universe in the new heavens and the new earth. A literal restored creation, just like we are in now, restored back to its original glory before sin. That's what we will live in in all eternity. Not just this big cube gold box in the sky, it's new heavens, new earth. This is saturated in Old Testament thinking in, in Second Temple Judaism all the way into New Testament Scripture. That's the reality of the, the age to come. We will be restored back to our original glory. Now, the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. This is the closing words of Matthew. And when they saw Him, they worshipped Him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So Jesus gives them five things. He says, go. I'm, I'm leaving. I'm going to ascend into the heavens. That's coming in Acts 1. I'm going to be leaving you, but you go. And that's what we're doing here today. That's why this church was planted, out of an obedience of the words of Jesus to say, go. That's all we're doing here today is obeying the command to go. Second thing he says is he goes, I want you to make disciples. That's what we're doing here today is making disciples. Every single one of us are in the process of becoming a better disciple of Jesus Christ. None of us ever arrive. There is no point to say, okay, I'm here, I've arrived, there's no further growth that I can do. 
We call it discipleship. We call it sanctification, the work of the Holy Spirit working on us to make us more like Christ. Sanctification is not tied to our salvation. It's to make us reflect His image more perfectly. That's what I said at the beginning. I'm not quite like Jesus. I'm not quite like. I'm really far off from being just like Jesus. But every day I'm trying to be a better disciple. I'm trying to let His Spirit sanctify me and say, you know what? You, know, I, you get the outside cleaned up pretty easy. The outside's easy. That, that's no problem. It's the inward man. It's the part that only God sees. It's the part where the Holy Spirit goes down to the dark hallways of your soul and knocks on the door and says, what do we have in here, in this closet? And we quickly close the door and say, oh, nothing, 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 nothing to see here, Lord. Move on down. But that's what sanctification is. It's what, we don't talk about it a lot, but the word spiritual formation. Spiritual, I'm being formed into the image of Christ every day. Go, make disciples, baptize. It is a mark of becoming a disciple for 2,000 years and for good reason because Jesus started it and said baptize. And while the focus of this morning is not on baptism, if you have not been baptized in the only saving name of Jesus Christ, if you have not been baptized, there is opportunity here for you to be baptized. Uh, Not here this morning, we don't have it, um, but we can make that happen pretty easy. Uh, We have connections, we have relationships with other churches, um, and if you need to be baptized, you want to be baptized, you see the need, we will make that happen. Uh, The only thing that I say for that is a person should have a credible profession of faith. Uh, I've never been a big fan of just somebody walking off the street in a church service and baptizing them because I don't know where they're at in their faith. Uh, Baptism doesn't, like putting you underwater isn't going to save you. So I I, want to know, I want to talk to that person. I want to make sure they understand what's happening. And then I tell people, give me 30 minutes, an hour, tops. Let's walk through some scriptures so you understand what's happening with baptism. Once we do that, you're ready. Let's baptize you into the body of believers and baptize you into Christ. Why do we baptize in the name of Jesus? Because you are being buried with Christ in baptism. You are being baptized into the person of Christ. Paul is so clear. Uh, in, in the New Testament, if this is what's happening, you are being placed into Christ. We talk a lot about our bodies being the temple of the Holy Spirit, and it is. So the Holy Spirit dwells in us through the baptism of the Holy Spirit, but we dwell in Christ through our baptism with Him in water. And then we identify publicly as a disciple. Go, make disciples, baptize, teaching them to observe all Jesus commanded. This is what we do. We teach people. We disciple. We, we teach them. Observe what Christ commanded. And all that's possible because of His wonderful promise. Jesus says, Behold, I am with you even until the end of this age. He goes, I am always going to be with you. And He says that and then He turns around and leaves. Like He ascends into the heavens, but He says, I am going to be with you. That's because His Spirit's with us. On the day of Pentecost, He pours out His Spirit. So, we as believers be filled with the baptism of His Spirit. It's not another God. It's not kind of like Jesus. It is the Spirit of Jesus Christ dwelling within us. It is the Spirit that proceeds from the Son. So if Jesus were to walk in this this door right here this morning, we would all fall at His feet and say, I'm so glad you showed up, but He is here this morning. He is here in this room this morning just as if He were here in this flesh. He is alive and He is with us today. The Apostle Paul said, Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. 
Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count it as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. And then one of the most well-known verses in the Bible, Philippians 3.10, Paul says that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death that by any means possible I may attain resurrection from the dead. I want to know Christ and I want to know the power of His resurrection. Not so I can have power gifts or so I can have success or fame or achievement. I want to know Him and His resurrection power so I can share in His sufferings, so I can become like Him in His death. For the people of God, the resurrection was inseparable from the crucifixion. So today on Resurrection Sunday, we remember Christ's death but we also celebrate His resurrection power. You can't have one without the other. We have the death of Christ and we have His resurrection and we celebrate that today. And unless Jesus rises again, we have no hope. There is no glory and there is no outpouring of the Holy Spirit if Christ does not rise again. The old song, and I'll close with these words. The old song said, God sent His Son and they called Him Jesus. He came to love, heal, and forgive. He lived and died to buy my pardon. An empty grave is there to prove my Savior lives. And the Course said, Because He lives, I can face tomorrow. And because He lives, all fear is gone. Because I know He holds the future. And life is worth living just because He lives. <clears throat> I live in a world this morning that has a serious deficiency in hope. I visited a food pantry, homeless shelter, several years ago. Um, it was for the United Way, and I, I would lead groups of people to these different United Way agencies trying to get people to give to the United Way. and. <clears throat> In this particular place, uh, it was it was very busy that day, and I was with the the guy who was in charge of the facility. His name was Jr., and he was showing me around. And as I looked in the faces of all of the people there, um, what I saw most was a lack of hope. They had no reason to think that tomorrow was going to be better than today. If they knew that this was a rough spot and that tomorrow would be better, it probably wouldn't affect them as much. But tomorrow probably was going to be like today and the next day like the day before. They didn't see any way out. And I believe in supporting places like that. I, you know, the, the scripture says, uh, faith, James talking about faith without works being dead said, you know, if you just say here, um, somebody that's hungry go and you know and you encourage them but you don't give them food there's like you didn't do anything for them you need to work with the faith you haven't done anything for that person so i i believe in, in things like that i believe that the church should be involved in things like that to, to help people like that i think that that is part of what the church should do on the earth 
It's more than just faith. I think the church should be involved in real world uh, events and to, and to help the community. But what I saw that day was more than a lack of food, it was a lack of hope. And the thing is, is that I can look in the faces of people that have a million dollars in the bank, and without God I see the same thing. It's like they lack hope because they don't have what they, they need. What we have this morning, what you have the unique opportunity if you're sitting in this place today, is that you are hearing the words of the gospel, not my words, but the words of Jesus Christ and what He did for us, and you can have hope. Whether you make a lot of money in this life or not, whether you make a name for yourself in this life or not, really doesn't matter. What matters is that you have put your faith, your trust and confidence in Jesus Christ, that you believe He is who He says He is, that He is Lord of your life, that you have lived a life of repentance unto Him, a life that turns away from sin, and that in response to the grace and the mercy that He gives, that you step forward and say, I am ready to be baptized. I am ready to be buried in His name. I want to be filled with the baptism of His Holy Spirit. All of a response, not as an effort for you to earn your salvation, but as a response to the grace and mercy that Jesus Christ has showed us. Upon a life I did not live, and upon a death I did not die, I stake my whole eternity. I'm going to pray and then ask Peggy if she would lead us in song. Father, this morning, thank you for the sacrifice that you gave on Calvary. It wasn't possible that through the blood of bulls and goats in the Old Testament that our sins could be remitted and forgiven. So you stepped forward. You came to dwell among us to die on a cross for my sins. It's a story that we've heard so many times, but it is a story that never ceases to leave us in awe, for we know that without that sacrifice, we are without hope. We know that every sin ever committed in history in our life must be reconciled by the wrath of God or the judgment of God or the blood that you shed for us on the cross. So you took the wrath upon yourself. You absorbed the wrath in your body. My sin paid for in your body that day. And Lord, I am forever grateful for that. And now I live a life, not an effort to pay you back. I could never do that. But I live a life today, and we all this morning commit to leading lives as a response to the grace and mercy that's been shown us. That all we can do is worship you and honor you and exalt you for who you are that no flesh should glory in your presence. I must decrease and you must increase. So this morning, Lord, we, we thank you for that. And this morning we celebrate the resurrection, that I may know you and the power of your resurrection and the fellowship of your sufferings being made conformable to your death. That, Lord, because you live today, because you rose again 2,000 years ago, I can have life and that life more abundantly in this life and that I am promised a life eternal in the age to come. I will never see death. I truly will never see death if I am in Christ. And that is the hope that I have this morning. While this body is dying a little by little every day, the inward man is being renewed daily because your spirit dwells within us. Lord, we honor you and we thank you for that. And if there be someone here this morning that doesn't know you in this dimension, I pray for that 
convicting power of your Holy Spirit that would prick the heart, not out of condemnation, not pushing you away, but out of conviction that draws you to an altar, that draws the person towards you. I pray for that conviction this morning, that conviction of sin, Lord, that, that separates us from lifestyles and habits and things that are not pleasing to you and draws us to you, to the cross, to a place of repentance where we can know true joy, true happiness today. It is all because you live. We ask this this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Sister Peggy.